So March 30th of 2020, I woke up, I went to an online dance class for one minute or two minutes. And then I just felt, wow, I feel really out of it. This specific form of fatigue in my body, I've never felt this. And then I, a few days later, I lost my sense of uh, smell and taste. Anna roberts Travolt is a musician living in Queens, New York. At the time she got sick last year, at the end of March 2020, New York hospitals were struggling to keep up with new COVID infections. And she was told, if you're not having an emergency, don't come in. So she didn't. But she also didn't get better. I was really tired and very loopy, very out of it for about three weeks. And then I thought I got better. And then I realized in this very slow and unfolding way, oh, I'm not getting better. And oh, there are other people who aren't getting better. And oh my gosh, like it's just, I guess it's been... I think this is month 17 for me, which is surreal to say. Anna was right. She wasn't alone. I'm Shamir Smith. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm 39 years old. I can't help but to go back to that day. I became ill on March 22nd. It started off with a very sore throat. I was fatigued and I did not understand why. The next day, on that Monday, I woke up and I had this very eerie spinal pain. But by Wednesday, I truly, truly knew that something was wrong. I couldn't even really keep my head up. I had to, I was lying down all the time. I experienced memory loss. I could not recall information. I stopped being able to read and comprehend information. I lost my vision for five months. And I truly now know what it feels like when people say I've lost my mind. That is not just a figurative term. That is something that could really, really happen. And it almost happened to me. Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're checking back in on a story we last covered more than six months ago about how people are coping with the long-term health effects of COVID-19. Despite some medical advances, there's still a lot we don't know. So we're going to skim the latest good and bad news about the state of research into what's being called long COVID. We'll also give you the latest out of Afghanistan and break down what the FDA's full authorization of Pfizer's COVID vaccine actually means. Also, what's up with school reopenings and reclosings? And later, we'll talk to a Wall Street Journal reporter about the growing number of Americans living a double life by working two day jobs without telling either of their employers. Sounds a bit bold, but bosses, listen up. Maybe this outcome is on you. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start this week with a quick look at the latest from Afghanistan. At the time we published this episode, some of America's allies are reportedly wrapping up their civilian evacuations from the country. Meanwhile, the U.S. is still trying to get more civilians out, but hopes to end the airlift soon. That would provide just enough time to fly troops and equipment out before the withdrawal deadline next Tuesday. Here's how the evacuation is going. 
In the last 12 days, the U.S. says it's helped evacuate 88,000 people from Afghanistan, including 4,500 Americans. But the mission isn't over yet. As of Wednesday, the U.S. said up to 1,500 Americans could still be waiting to be evacuated out of Afghanistan. Luckily for them, the U.S. military is protecting them, sometimes using helicopters as they make their way to evacuation flights. But Afghan civilians who helped the U.S., who the U.S. initially promised to help evacuate, are in a very different situation. Earlier this week, the Taliban said it would block Afghans from passing through its checkpoints. That's effectively stranded thousands of Afghans who hoped to flee before the August 31st deadline. And a lot of them spent years helping the U.S. military, as translators, drivers, or as support staff. With Afghans blocked from leaving, specially chartered evacuation flights are taking off with almost no passengers on board. On Twitter, a New York Times reporter described a massive fundraising campaign to secure 900 seats for at-risk Afghans on three flights. But the reporter said those 900 people were blocked from passing through Taliban and U.S. checkpoints. Despite working every one of her contacts, the reporter said those planes were going to land in Kabul and leave mostly empty. The fate of those left behind is unclear. The Taliban says Afghans with the right legal documents will be allowed to leave Afghanistan on commercial flights after the U.S. is gone. But the Taliban has made similar promises in the past and failed to keep them. Which might explain why thousands of Afghans are hoping to leave right now, before the Taliban is the only show in town. And that brings us to the second thing we wanted to talk about, the worsening security situation in Afghanistan. On Thursday, dozens of people were reportedly killed in an attack that targeted crowds gathered outside the airport in Kabul. The dead reportedly include 12 U.S. soldiers. These attacks, likely carried out by an Islamic State affiliate called ISIS-K, were hardly a surprise. Here was President Biden earlier this week. Every day we're on the ground. Is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport and attack both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians. And just hours before Thursday's attack, the U.S. warned American citizens to stay away from the airport, saying that ISIS-K was likely planning an attack near the airport gates. Going forward, some analysts predict more attacks are all but inevitable, and that Afghanistan could once again become a hotbed for terrorism. That's because, as the Taliban seized control earlier this month, they reportedly released thousands of prisoners, including members of al-Qaeda. Around 100 ISIS-K fighters also reportedly escaped from prison, joining hundreds more who were freed last year. And even militant or terrorist groups that don't pose an immediate threat could become a problem going forward. Meaning the U.S. can't fully take its eye off of Afghanistan, even if soon we'll be monitoring the situation from afar. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. Remember this? Biden now calling on the U.S. intelligence community to intensify its investigation into the origin of COVID-19. U.S. intelligence had 90 days to figure out where COVID came from, and now time's up. This week, Biden got the classified report, which reportedly said, we're still not sure how this thing started. American investigators were looking at two theories, that COVID leaked out of a Chinese research lab 
or that it naturally made the jump from animals to humans. 90 days of more studying, and it doesn't sound like the U.S. has arrived at its final answer. According to CNN, government agencies were still changing their minds days before the report dropped. One major reason the U.S. can't get to the bottom of this? According to U.S. officials, China hasn't exactly been cooperative or transparent when it comes to sharing info about COVID. Plus, China's already dismissed this report, slamming it as political. So it turns out, asking for a concrete answer doesn't always mean you get one, even if you're the president of the United States. Next up, it's that time of year again. I hope you all had a wonderful summer break. We are back together again on the eve of a bright new school year. It's 5 a.m. Oh my God, I'm so tired. Here's the deal. Nobody wanted another year of Zoom school, but here we are. A lot of schools are already telling parents, we're going to watch new cases and see how this goes. Even if the plan just a few weeks or even days ago had been to return to in-person learning. Now, some schools are temporarily closing, switching back to remote learning, or trying to stay open by quarantining large groups of students. This is playing out all over the country, but especially in states where COVID numbers are spiking, like in Texas, Florida, and Mississippi. And we should note, it's not like the country's biggest school districts, where COVID is a little more under control, have figured this out either. In New York City, kids are supposed to return to class five days a week early next month. But there's still a lot of confusion over what happens if, and likely when, people start getting infected. Reportedly, Chicago is also considering outright closing schools depending on what unfolds. Given how quickly things are changing, you can't really blame schools for not being totally certain what this next semester is going to look like. But in the meantime, all this will-they-won't-they they is having a negative impact on families, and particularly on women, who are trying to juggle their jobs, childcare, and potentially another year of homeschooling. And our final headline. This week, the website OnlyFans did a very public 180, after saying last week that it was going to ban sexually explicit content from the platform. Here's the context. Banning explicit content is a problem if your business has around 130 million subscribers, most of whom want to watch just that. Cue all the memes. Someone joked on Twitter that OnlyFans banning explicit content was like KFC banning the sale of chicken. But the CEO of OnlyFans said he felt a lot of pressure from several banks who didn't want to be associated with that kind of content and who started rejecting wire transfers, making it tough for OnlyFans to pay creators. A lot of people rely on OnlyFans as their main source of income. The platform has been praised by sex workers who say it allows them to work in safe conditions. They weren't happy about the company's change in direction, saying it profited off their work before getting rid of them. After a lot of public outcry, OnlyFans said it's been reassured by banks that it will be able to pay its creators after all. The company tweeted out that decision, saying it, quote, stands for inclusion and we will continue to provide a home for all creators. But some of them are saying, yeah, no, and taking their business elsewhere. As one OnlyFans star replied to the company's I want you back post, being gaslit and manipulated by OnlyFans was like being back with one of her ex-boyfriends.
This week, after months of dating, the Food and Drug Administration decided to make things official with the Pfizer vaccine. For the first time, the FDA granted full, unqualified, not emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine for everybody age 16 and up. Thanks, Rachel Maddow. That's right. Pfizer got to drop the emergency from its name and is now fully approved by the FDA. Here's what's different. When it granted emergency use authorization, the FDA looked at as little as two months of data from drug companies showing their vaccines worked. Pfizer, J&J, and Moderna had that data, and the FDA liked what they saw, which meant those shots became available in the U.S. But things start to get more serious when drug companies apply for full FDA approval, which requires them to show six months of data. Pfizer did producing 340,000 pages for review before it finally got out of the friend zone. And this time, the FDA found serious side effects were still super rare and that the shot was 91% effective at preventing COVID-19, even six months after your second shot. Though we should note, that six-month period wrapped before the Delta variant hit, which could make that efficacy rate go down. So now that the FDA and Pfizer have defined their relationship, a lot of people are saying it's about time. Because there are still around 85 million people eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine who haven't yet. And the Biden administration is hoping the FDA's endorsement for Pfizer will ease some of their concerns. One poll found that 31% of unvaccinated adults said the FDA's full approval would make them more likely to get the shot. Though some experts have lower expectations saying this authorization probably won't move the needle too much when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. But there's another major reason the FDA's PDA with Pfizer this week was a big deal. Mandates may become more common once the FDA grants final approval to the current vaccines. A day after the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer vaccine, health officials are urging businesses to step up. You have the power to protect your communities and help end the pandemic. This full authorization is opening up the doors for businesses, schools, and government agencies to mandate vaccines. And in the days since Monday's announcement, it already seems like that's starting to happen in a lot of places. Following the announcement, the Pentagon said it's moving ahead with vaccine requirements for active service members. Same with CVS Health, Disney World, and a bunch of colleges, like the New York State University System, Louisiana State, and Ohio State. And some companies, like Delta Airlines, are taking another approach. They're not requiring vaccinations per se, but they will add $200 in monthly health insurance charges for staff that don't get vaxxed. And don't expect mandates to go away anytime soon. Especially because, even though Pfizer got the FDA's final rose this week, Moderna is vying for some of the FDA's attention too, and its full approval doesn't seem too far behind, while J&J plans to file later this year. And now, let's turn to a topic we've come back to a lot on this show since COVID became everybody's least favorite coworker. How millennials are feeling about their jobs right now. A lot of us are feeling burnt out or undervalued at work and desperate for better work-life balance. No wonder two in three Americans are reportedly shopping for a new job. But there's another subset of millennials 
tech workers, but also people in insurance, finance, and other computer-based jobs who are taking the opposite approach and working two full-time jobs while their bosses have no clue. Basically, living a double life, kind of like a spy, but instead of being 007, you're just doubling up the Zoom calls. To learn more about who's doing this, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it, we talked to Rachel Feinzig, the Wall Street Journal's work and life columnist. Rachel, I read your article over the weekend. So I'd love to start by asking you, why'd you decide to report on people who are working two full-time gigs? I think it was the secrecy element, you know, just the fact that these people were doing this at the same time. They were logged on to two meetings at once. This kind of double life thing was just really intriguing to me. And in your article, I think it was everyone wanted to be anonymous, right? Why did they not want to give you their name? Yeah, I don't usually write stories with this many anonymous sources. Um, And I tried to get people to go on the record, especially people who were kind of maybe in between two jobs or had done this previously. And those people told me that they didn't want to be named because they wanted the opportunity to do this again. I mean, the whole thing is predicated on being secret, right? Like I said, that's what attracted me to the story. And that's the crux of these tales. And so that's why we granted people anonymity. Can you walk me through, as far as you understand it, the legality of working two jobs? Is that legal? And then if it isn't legal, are there consequences? I talked to several employment lawyers. They told me that it doesn't violate state or federal laws. So it's not like a criminal offense, but it comes down to your contract. Most contracts probably wouldn't say you can't work another full-time job, but you very well might have a non-compete that says you can't work for a competitor. So if your second job violates that, that could be a contract violation and that could prompt a company to sue you if you're found out. But what the lawyers told me is that probably what would happen is that you would just be fired. Some of the things that you might be in violation of are a little bit more squishy, things like disclosing confidential information. A company might not want to go down that path of kind of suing you over something like that. So chances are you would probably just be fired. Based on your interviews, what were people's motivations for finding that second job? Were they trying to make more money? Were they feeling unhappy? What was driving them? I think in some cases it was a sense of inequity, like they had worked so hard and they had been passed over for a promotion or they just felt like even if they were killing it, their raise was like a couple percentage points more than the guy sitting next to them. Some people were worried about layoffs. This was a financial security thing. Double your benefits, double your income. If you lose one job, at least you still have another. And some people were just bored at the beginning of the pandemic. They had all this time or they were bored at their companies previously. There was all this dead time and they felt like they didn't have enough to do. How did the people that you interviewed say that they were managing two jobs? I think the burnout level from one job for a lot of people is really high. How were they making it work with two? And were there any huge accidents? Yes. So for your first question, I think it depends on the job. I mean, some people weren't working more than 40 hours a week combined. That was kind of like the game, right? Like you find these jobs that are just easy where your manager doesn't really know what you're doing. Other people were working up to 100 hours a week and they were burnt out, but the money was so good. They kind of just couldn't give it up. And then, yeah, those kind of oh shit moments. A lot of it was around double meetings. So people literally logging on to two meetings for two jobs at the same time. 
and they unmute one too quickly and that person hears something else. Someone else had an example where the person pulled up a pay stub because he had a question about his compensation and it turned out that the other company was also on that same platform. So that pay stub came up as well. But with all the close calls of the people I talked to, they didn't get found out. People just kind of didn't notice and went about their day. Wow, that stresses me out even hearing that. I'm curious, even though being overemployed may only apply to a small subset of people, what did your reporting tell you about the kind of sentiments in the broader workforce right now? I think that's one of the reasons I was really attracted to the story because while most people aren't getting two full-time jobs or pulling off some secret double life, there was like a clear strand between what I think the vast majority of the workforce feels and what these people were doing. I think there is discontent. Wages are finally starting to go up, but inflation is also ticking up. There have been all these layoffs during the pandemic. I think people are reevaluating their lives. And I think workers are gaining leverage. But overall, I think employers have had a lot of leverage for decades. So I think it makes sense that people are starting to say, like, we need to shift things. Something I saw in the comment section of the article was that people were concerned that this would cause employers to kind of over-monitor people and be concerned about their work-from-home workforce. But it doesn't really sound like this is just a matter of employees slacking off at one job. They're acting on real frustrations that they have. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. And also, I mean, like, look, like, and I, I make this point in the article, a lot of people are working really, really hard working from home. I mean, I think there's a question of like, what does it mean to be a worker? Are you a robot and you're supposed to be making widgets every five minutes? Or, you know, the time that you're putting in a load of laundry and then you have a brilliant idea that gets you through a project. Did you actually need those moments to free your brain? So I hope that this, you know, story does not make managers kind of pull back on remote work. Where did people say in your reporting that employers were falling short? I think there's a sense that you're not actually rewarded for your hard work. Someone told me, like, the harder I work, the more people depend on me. But, like, my paycheck is exactly the same. And I think a lot of people feel like that. It's hard to, like, rise up internally in organizations. People feel like promotions aren't doled out fairly. So I think a lot of the discontent came from that. Rachel, my last question for you is if you had to take on a second job right now, what would you do and why? Oh my God. I sometimes I feel like I'm working like three full-time jobs anyway, just doing this, this job. I think something totally different. I don't know, working at an ice cream shop. And I heard that from the workers I talked to, like that it was helpful when you're working something totally different just to keep track of it. People had like different color-coded browsers, you know, different laptops. Like you want to kind of shift your brain. So I think that's the route that I would I would go for. Rachel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. At the top of the show, you heard from Anna and Shamir, two women who are suffering from what's known as long COVID. If that sounds like a really broad and kind of generic name for a health condition, you're not wrong. This is an intentionally broad definition. It can encompass someone who was in the hospital with severe disease, who has long-lasting scarring or damage to the heart or lungs or other vital systems. But in the past year, we've seen emerging more and more 
just how many people who had mild or moderate COVID-19. So people who initially didn't have to go be in the hospital or need to be supported with oxygen or targeted treatments, but have had this failure to recover characterized by clusters of symptoms. That's Dr. Hannah Axelrod, an infectious disease physician at George Washington University. Last year, she co-founded GW's COVID-19 Recovery Clinic to care for people suffering with long COVID. She told us some of the clusters of long COVID symptoms include things like shortness of breath, difficulty catching your breath or getting back to endurance with exercise, irregular or uncontrolled heart rate and rhythm, neurologic symptoms such as nerve pain, headaches or migraines, profound fatigue, cognitive issues such as memory and attention span problems. We've also seen a lot of sleep disturbances. We've seen some people with long-lasting temperature dysregulations, people who feel hot or cold or may actually run low-grade fevers for a long time after initial infection. Some studies have estimated that more than 1 in 10 people who contract COVID-19 have reported suffering from long COVID. And researchers have noted this seems to affect more women than men. In our clinic, the average age of a patient has been in their 40s, maybe 30s. And we have seen three to one female to male ratio. We don't know if that is because females are more affected or because women are more likely to seek care. Regardless of the explanation for that, with the Delta variant now causing huge spikes in case numbers and hospitalizations, the medical community is facing increasing pressure to figure out what exactly is going on with long COVID. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of bad news here. Like, we're around 18 months into this pandemic, and researchers still don't have a strong idea of what causes long COVID in the first place. So far, there are a few working theories. So one of the strongest hypotheses out the gate was that the extreme inflammatory reaction that COVID-19 can provoke, even in healthy people, can trigger autoimmune damage, overproduction of antibodies. Think of this like antibodies that essentially misfire or go into overdrive and attack other tissues in the body, not the virus they should be targeting. If that's what's going on here, it would make long COVID an autoimmune disease. Over time, Dr. Axelrod says another working theory has emerged. Long COVID for maybe half the patients, maybe more, appears to involve the nervous system. She's not sure what's causing this, saying it could either be COVID-19 directly attaching to and attacking nerve cells or the body's immune response causing the damage. Either way, damage is being done, and it's causing ongoing neurological symptoms like brain fog, headache, or the loss of smell. Proving Either of these hypotheses or another one is going to be difficult, especially because of just how many symptoms have been reported. One study of just a few thousand people dealing with long COVID found they were suffering from more than 200 different symptoms. And these symptoms aren't just different for a lot of people. They can also be really severe, requiring a total change in how some people live their lives. Here's Anna, the musician from Queens you heard from earlier. I feel like In some ways, I haven't changed as a person, but I also feel like every single thing has changed. Like, everything's changed. It's overwhelming. I think a lot of my able-bodied friends say, like, what have you been up to? And a lot of times I say, 
nothing. But then I remember like, actually, I've been learning this whole new way of life, like just jumped in a, a whole new way of living and trying to just learn as much as I, I can about that while I'm super tired. <laughs> Another thing tiring people out dealing with long COVID is feeling disregarded by doctors. Here's Shamir, who you also heard from earlier. She told us she's constantly felt like she's had to be her own doctor because her actual doctors weren't listening to her. I wasn't treated fairly. I wasn't treated with compassion or care. I wasn't listened to. I wasn't heard. And I was dismissed. And on top of that, she says her experience was likely made worse because of existing discrimination in the healthcare system. In those first eight months, I experienced sexism and racism from doctors. And even just a basic headache wasn't listened to or it wasn't validated by doctors. I never thought I would have that experience. But as soon as I started to watch myself from March until probably about October of last year, I said, wow, I had been tossed aside, dismissed by doctors just because there is this overarching assumption that Black people, Black women don't know their bodies. Doctors assumed time after time that I did not know what I was talking about when I said that these are the symptoms of COVID. Okay, so those are the many challenges that people with long COVID face. But both Shamir and Anna have taken specific steps to try to make living with long COVID easier. Shamir has become an advocate for herself and for others. It's important for a person who is dealing with long COVID to continue. Don't stop advocating for themselves. Keep copious notes of the treatment and the care that they're getting from doctors. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Write the questions down. You know, write symptoms down. While Anna has found new groups to go to for validation and support, leaning on others in the long COVID community and the disabled community for help. It's been a lot of learning about how people live who are chronically ill. And I feel so grateful for them saying, you know, that you don't have to reinvent from scratch how to live as a sick person. And they're like, oh, you could try this. Or like, this is easier than this. Or here's some tips about how you could eat that takes less energy. Like, here's some easy to prep meals. Which brings us to our good news. Kinda. Dr. Axelrod says, compared to several months ago, there are now more treatments available to alleviate certain long COVID symptoms. We know more about medical treatment. The use of nerve pain medication seems to be quite promising in alleviating the symptoms and allowing people to recover and to regain control. According to Scientific American, other treatments that seem to work for some people include taking stimulants like Adderall or Ritalin for concentration issues, those same researchers also have observed that some asthma treatments and breathing exercises can help people who feel short of breath. More money is also being invested into studying long COVID, including from the National Institutes of Health, which says it's allocating over a billion dollars towards more research. Dr. Axelrod admits that help is needed. It's been difficult to get long COVID patients the care they need. 
the state of our healthcare system right now. We're hearing every day how overstretched and overburdened even acute care is across the nation. We're in the middle of our greatest challenge so far in terms of health workforce. The Delta wave has hit areas where ICUs are full, hospitals are full, and nurses and physicians are quitting or considering quitting at unprecedented levels. We don't have the replacement capacity that we need. We need to develop it. But she says doctors are paying attention. We see greater awareness of that in primary care physicians and cardiologists now. So we do think the medical community is adjusting in terms of what we know. I hope is that the patients suffering from long-term symptoms and the healthcare workforce that may be motivated and inspired to take care of them in the future can work together and figure out how best to support each other. We all need to recover from this. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Peter Bonaventure. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. The Skim's senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.